welcome to the webinar. My name is Hannah Dyson uh, from Enfield Voices and Global Net 21. And this is one of the regular webinars we do, exploring local, national and international issues. Uh, so in tonight's webinar, we're delighted to have Emma Radway Bright, uh, who will be discussing a clash of cultures. Um, and we're going to call this webinar International Childhood Tales. We will ex be exploring uplifting and inspirational stories from Emma's international childhood. And we will explore how these experiences can shape our identity and ultimately our life. And we will explore how childhood experiences can influence our mentality, ambition and decisions through life. Um, how do our experiences observing and interacting and learning from our grandparents influence relationships, uh, our approach to life and our confidence? So hi Emma and welcome to the webinar. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining uh, us tonight. Uh, can you tell us um, briefly about yourself and your background please? Okay so well obviously I'm Emma. Um, at the moment I'm a psychotherapist working in London but obviously online because of the pandemic. Um, Originally, I would say I'm a true Afro-Caribbean in the sense that my mum is from the Caribbean, she's from Barbados, which they say Bajan rather than Barbadian, mm. um, and my dad is from Nigeria in West Africa. So I was kind of brought up with a really interesting clash of cultures, um, because I think those two countries are probably like the strongest personalities on their respective continents. Um, so part of my childhood, I was born in South London. Um, when I was quite young, my dad decided he wanted to go, he was, he was a paediatrician working at Great Ormond Street Hospital. He decided he wanted to go back to Nigeria and, you know, use his skills to help children there. So we initially went back when I was quite young and then my mum got pregnant unexpectedly <laughs> and on the way to the airport ended up giving birth so they decided to wait a few months so to travel with my younger sister so we actually came back to the UK when I was five um, then my dad decided to do some specialist training so we went to Dublin and then so my first couple of years of primary school were in Dublin <laughs> and in a Gaelic speaking school as well. So I had to learn Gaelic, I can't remember any. But, um, I think I was just so young, I picked it up really easily. I did and, wonder why you said Dublin, why you, yeah, but that makes sense why you went to yeah. Dublin. <laughs> and then when he finished his training, moved back to Gosh again. So we came back to London and I don't know, my dad always had these whims of helping children in Africa because obviously he was a paediatrician. So for my secondary school, they thought I could do with a bit of culture. And I went to boarding school in Nigeria while he moved back there because he got a job as a chief consultant of a children's hospital. So I actually did part of my secondary school here. I did my first two years of secondary school. Then I moved over to there, which was a baptism of fire, which was quite interesting. Um, then finished secondary school there, came back here for university, and I've been here more or less ever since. And I suppose that's it in a nutshell. Do you think, where yeah. I say London, it's easier. Do you think um, 
was it quite strict to being at boarding school in Nigeria um, compared to maybe to your schooling the first two years in London and do you think that's kind of had a bearing on how you are as an adult? Um, I think so because my school here because I remember it vividly I wouldn't say there were no rules but it wasn't as strict and rigid and I think with the boarding school obviously they had it was a it was the largest boarding school in West Africa so it actually had 2,000 students wow. and at the time that was like early 80s that was like a big school and catering for a full boarding school as well so I think in order to keep everybody in line there were very very strict rigid rules and I was like the kid from London that was like, why do I have to follow these rules? I got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> my oh, no. I got sent home a lot or my dad got called a lot. <laughs> so, but I think once I settled down, the first year was just an, a total culture shock, totally different food. It was the first time I'd been surrounded that I could remember because I'd been there when I was younger. But the first time I'd been surrounded by, you know, like say, I think 80, 90% of the students were black, only 10% of them were white or Asian. So it was a total flip to having been brought up in Mitcham, where in my primary school, I was the only black child. In my secondary school, there were only three other black children in my school at the time. So it was a really big, big culture shock. So I spent yeah. a lot of time writing to my friends in London as well oh yeah that'd be quite interesting actually to see those letters all, all those thoughts that you in those feelings that you had when you were going through those um yeah. those years because obviously you were also a teenager so that oh, also God. brought <laughs> the difficulties yeah. oh my, my gosh. diaries from those years which is because i've kept all my like childhood oh. diaries and stuff and sometimes i have a really big giggle reading through yeah some of the stuff so <laughs> <laughs> kind of like yeah kind of a rebel in the making but and and we're quick but people I suppose in Nigeria or, or London really especially with secondary school and maybe primary school were they quite ambitious when you were growing up or did you get your ambition from your parents because I know you eventually trained as a scientist and so you yeah. were quite well at uh, university and you sort of had those qualifications that went into the science world so did it all start when you're at secondary school in Nigeria, well, was it your parents or your well, dad? No, <laughs> probably started from nursery or from when I could talk. Oh, really? Well, my dad was always, he did it, funny enough, he did it to my daughter as well. He was always like, you're going to be a doctor when you grow up. <laughs> okay. So you're from like, a very young age, and I think amongst the African culture, because he had a lot of his friends were also here because they all went to they all came over here to go to university and postgrad and stuff like that so amongst the African culture when they see a child one of the first things they ask you is what do you want to be when you grow up they're not interested in how do you like school or your friends it's like what do you want to be so I'd always be like I'm going to be a doctor so oh, I think when I went to secondary school over there it was actually part of why it was a culture shock was the academic because I had done part of my second year of secondary school here and then joined them after the first term over there and there they grade you so like in my form in my year there were two I remember this vividly there were 223 girls 
in my year group. And that first term that I was there, they grade you like first, second, third position in the year. I came 221 out of 223. Oh, <laughs> so no. there were two people behind me, God knows what they were like. But my dad was so proud. Because <laughs> so, everyone else was really scared, you know, it was such a big thing. They were so competitive and academic. And it was such a shock to me because the maths, the English, there was no way I was on that level at all. So wow. I think the teachers were even quite generous in not making me last. So, so the standards you know, is really, really high. Really high. The expectation is yeah. very, very high of the level of work. You know, prep was, you know, because I'd read Mallory Towers and all those things. And I thought prep was when you're going to just sit down and chat to your friends and eat biscuits. And <laughs> no, prep was like <laughs> proper studying. No one, it'd be silence. No mm. one would talk, they'd all be, you know, and it wasn't just doing homework, it was preparing for the next classes and things like that. And I was just totally a fish out of water when it came yeah. to all of that. I was still running around thinking I was going to play. So they were teaching you to kind of really use your time to the maximum, don't waste any time. Um, there wasn't like we had there wasn't play time we had yeah. sports where it was like inter-house sports and the boarding um house but that was competitive as well and that was like you know we had marching teams and all that so it was like being drilled in everything it wasn't besides like a Sunday afternoon where everybody was doing their hair you know washing their hair and stuff it wasn't much just chilling it was always wow lessons studying very you know everybody wanted to be a doctor lawyer dentist mm. you know they were quite it was interesting <laughs> so, so I guess yeah. even if even if you don't have maybe a natural ability um, academic ability if you sort of apply yourself they they thought right with hard yeah. work you can get to your goals <laughs> that's yeah. what they're instilling because it's funny because like I was thinking about it today in preparation for this that a lot of my dorm mates like that were my good friends that we shared the same dormitory like particularly in my old like last two years there you know going through them they're doctors they're lawyers you know director of this and you know they've all done really mm. really well and a lot of it I think of couple of them weren't that bright <laughs> you were younger <laughs> you know but obviously that work ethic and the expectation I think a lot of it was the expectation that was put on that you did have to work hard to get what you want of course there were some really wealthy girls there but but I think actually they also worked hard because at that time it didn't matter how rich your parents were or whatever the school was a really great leveler of everybody you still had to work hard because so, yeah. the kudos came from being first to tenth in the year anything below that you were nothing <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah do you think that's kind of had an influence on how you raised your own daughter and your um even without you realizing maybe subconsciously um I think that it's weirdly driven me in the opposite direction because of my experience of especially like because I always wanted to study medicine and then I end up I ended up not studying medicine because I actually discovered 
while doing A-levels and voluntary work in hospitals, I don't really like sick people. <laughs> you know, the sight of blood, no thanks. Yeah. You know, I kind of realised by the time I was 17, 18, that actually that isn't what I wanted to do. But it taught me that going and having this second career that I have now as well, it just taught me that going for what you're passionate at, mm -hmm. you know, that you're passionate for, you'll always succeed. The happiness is more important than whether you're a doctor or you're titled or, you know, how much you earn or whatever. You could be the happiest cleaner bus driver. I would rather you're just happy as yes. my child rather yes. than, you know, because you have such high achieving people that are miserable and life's not, mm. you know, life's too short to be miserable. And that's not so, sustainable, I guess, because even if obviously the ambition starts in the school and then you get your goals and you're a doctor, a lawyer or whatever, um, yeah. it's not sustainable if you're um, unhappy and unfulfilled, perhaps. Yeah. Um, it's all of that doesn't mean anything if you're yeah. not happy. Yeah. Happy and healthy is all I want, you know. I yeah. say to her all the time, I'm always trying to talk her out of things like, are you sure you want to do that? Don't you just want to play? I just want to get jigsaw, jigsaw or something. No, <laughs> I have a child that is the total opposite to me that is really conscientious and loves working and gets excited about mm. school. Like when she was in primary school, she used to get so excited every morning about going to school. And I'm thinking, how is this my child? <laughs> you know, so. It might be something, I guess, something natural. Um, I mean, yeah. With the culture of like uh, Barbados and um, Nigeria, Dublin, um, UK, do you think, how do you think that's influenced maybe um, your, yeah, your, I guess your education and your ambition in, in like the clash of cultures? Well, I think the Nigerian part really did play a big part because of, I think those four years of going to secondary school in Nigeria really played a big part because it's not just the academics, it's everything about the culture and being very forthright and very confident in who you are as a Nigerian. And the interesting play on that is that throughout secondary school, everybody would always say to me, oh, but you're not Nigerian, you're, you know, because they have this saying that if your parent is West Indian, they don't care what island in the West Indies it is, they always just say Jamaican. And they don't say Jamaican like, oh, you're Jamaican. They say you're Jamo. It's just like a slang. Yeah. So they'd always go, oh, you're not Nigerian, you're Jamo. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> you know. So to Nigerians, I wasn't Nigerian. But to West Indians, because my West Indian part of the family were like, oh, you're part African and you've gone to school in Nigeria. So they'd refer to us as the African cousins or the Nigerian cousins. So it's always this thing of I didn't quite in Nigeria they didn't think I was in I was Nigerian in Barbados they don't think I'm Bajan mm. you know but yeah. I got a lot of still the cultural identity I think because I was there as a teenager as a Nigerian mm. and you know a lot of my friends now are because I went to school with them so yes yeah, so you can benefit from those cultures do you think yeah. do you think different nations have um different mentality various mentalities and then you can sort of you can observe those mentalities when you're in those countries even visiting yeah. I guess living and then you can kind of pick and choose and then that kind of gives you a better overall um, uh, view of the world 
Yeah, I think because I think for myself, I can be a bit of a chameleon because even though I was in Nigeria in a boarding school surrounded by mainly Nigerians, my home life was very much Bajan, West Indian, because when my mum, my mum eventually moved there with my younger sister so she could start school there as well when she finished primary school here. And then in Nigeria, they have a whole community of West Indian women married to Nigerian men. They formed this club where all the women used to get together one Saturday a month. They cooked together, the children all got, so every, all those children became your cousins. So the very, so my home was very West Indian. We ate West Indian food. We, you know, my mom's friends were all West Indian or Lebanese because then, you know, everybody jumped in at some point. You know, so the big culture clash would be, I'd be West Indian at home, you know, have roti, curry, peas and rice and all that, and then go back to school and I'm Nigerian again, or hanging out with my Nigerian friends versus my West Indian friends. So, and even here in London, like my West Indian family is a large family across, because my mum was the youngest of eight. And Ooh. we had a really large family across the whole of South London. So <laughs> there wasn't a Saturday when we weren't with one cousin or the other, having yeah. a big, big cook up of wow. food and everything. So that very West Indian side of me is still there. And it's interesting, like when I go back to Barbados, I'm totally, now as an adult, I totally feel Bajan when I'm there. When I go to mm. Nigeria, not so much it's a bit weird yeah. so, you yeah. kind of find your natural um place and where yeah. where you feel comfortable and the kind of yeah um, and I can switch yeah. between the accents and stuff and <laughs> the food yeah <laughs> I love it I can have pizza and rice and jollof rice all on Christmas day you know so. <laughs> they teach you how to cook and how how does um the cuisine or the and, and the food uh kind of um fit into your oh. memory especially your memories as a child when when do when do you start learning to cook as a child well I was I suppose I wasn't a typical child because I was really lazy <laughs> if I could get away with it because I think culturally as well it's always like the oldest child gets the responsibility for everything and because I had an older sister she's the one that got taught to cook and everything really really early so I think until I was probably, and especially because I was away in boarding school as well, we didn't have to cook for ourselves or anything. So it was probably more my late teens that my mum started teaching me how to cook and I'd cook some, yeah. I think I cook, my cuisine now is a big mixture of West Indian and Nigerian because I can cook both. I love both. Yeah. I can eat any, anywhere can mix them so I think it's just with the spices that if they use any spices or um it's very different ways of cooking very the food is very very distinctly different yeah but then you can switch it up from day to day so I have you know my cupboards are full of Nigerian spices and West Indian spices and when you're cooking nowadays like in your kitchen with your daughter or with your dog when you taste those um cuisines with the spices does it take you back to any kind of certain memory either in Barbados or Nigeria or even Dublin um 
Yeah, because I think I associate certain things. Like, say, if I was ill, my mum would always make like a West Indian dumpling soup. So there's a particular West Indian soup that has dumplings, potatoes, lamb, carrots, everything, and it's like <laughs> hearty. <laughs> so I think sometimes if I feel like pampering myself, I'll make the West Indian soup because it just give, brings that memory of childhood. But the minute you had, you know, a cold or anything, oh, you need some soup. And my mum would make up a big pot of soup. Oh. But then there's things like in Nigeria, they're really famous for, they have massive weddings and parties where like, you know, jollof rice, that orange rice or whatever is made. And they kill a cow and roast it on the spit and all that kind of stuff. So the minute I smell that, I remember everything about my childhood because that was the whole highlight of going to parties was you used to get little Tupperware um, containers that you could fill with food to take away from the party. <laughs> That's the one thing about Nigeria uh, I love. They cook, like say if they invite 20 people to a party, they'll cook for 50 people because they expect you to take home food that you know you can share with your family when you get home kind of thing. So that as a as a culture, I know this is true in other cultures as well. If you if you weren't to take away the food and the Tupperware, would that be a bit of an insult, or is that yeah, not the case? You're not being party like. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you come? <laughs> it's really it's interesting. I've seen. It's yeah. funny. I saw a comedy sketch on. Um, I can't remember the comedy. It's a black comedian on TV, and she did a sketch about Nigerian women all sitting around a hospital bed, and someone brings the jollof rice, and they all have their bags of Tupperware under their bed, <laughs> waiting to take some home, because it's almost like you know here a cultural thing, like and with West Indians as well. Like before you go to a party. My mum would make sure you have you eaten lunch, make sure you eat before you go because you're going to be out at someone else's house. But in Nigeria, the whole point is not to eat before you go because you're going to eat when you get there and you're going to bring dinner home as well. <laughs> Probably for another two days or three days. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the culture clash in that way was quite funny because my mum would be making us eat before we go out. We're like, but we're going to eat when we get there. <laughs> and you can't really say no when the auntie offers you food either. You can't yeah. say no already. Oh my God, she spent all afternoon cooking for you. So it's, it would almost be like a rejection of your auntie, almost if you would exactly. say, oh, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with them? Like, yeah, yeah. whereas my mum was being very West Indian and making sure you've eaten before you go so that you don't yeah. get out of their way, you know. So yeah, yeah that's true, actually. <laughs> she soon learned. So, yeah, because yeah, I think a lot, a lot of uh, parents in this country would say, oh, it's a bit rude to kind of um, maybe take things out of the fridge if you go to your friend's house or don't. Yeah, yeah there's that it's kind so of worry. Hungry. Yeah. yeah, you don't want to be too kind of, yeah. You can't get there and go, oh, I'm hungry. <laughs> Whereas a Nigerian auntie would be so pleased if you came in and say, oh, I'm hungry, auntie. She'd be so relishing the oh. fact that you don't worry. So, it's like yeah. opportunity to show love and uh, tenderness yeah. and compassion. Definitely. And I wondered, in terms of, sort of community action, because there's a lot of talk about sort of how communities can get together and help each other in different ways. Um, because it's obviously need especially in a pandemic but how um how's your childhood or your international childhood in different places uh, shaped your 
ideas um, or your views on community action? I think for me, maybe because my dad was a paediatrician who had this, you know, need to go back to Africa and help children in Africa and stuff. So a lot of my teenage years when I was back there, like when I was on holidays back from school, was going and helping out in the hospital, holding babies, things like that. So, and because it, it's a bit, my idea of community I think was totally shaped by him because even when he wasn't working if anything happened to a child you know I, I vividly remember once a little girl got knocked over on the road outside our house and everybody you know carried her in and she was on our dining table and my dad was looking after her and saying get this and get that because as a community everybody would look out for children regardless you know it's the same plate thing that if you got if you did something wrong on our road any of the mums could tell you off and you know give you a clip around the air and you wouldn't dare go back and tell my mum that somebody hit you because you get hit again <laughs> why did someone hit you what did you do rather than oh poor you kind of thing so I think yeah. my sense of community and giving back to the community came a lot from that kind of influence because everything, all our holidays were spent helping and stuff like that. And even when I came here and I was at university, all my holidays were, you know, helping the homeless out. But that was also driven by my professor because it was a rheumatology department where I was doing my PhD. So we'd go out and, you know, do stuff with homeless people, look at their feet, help them with shoes, things like that, clean up sores and things like that. So I think from just seeing the, the depth of poverty and thinking how much you could help when I was younger now informs how I feel about always being part of a community and helping people, living together, yeah. sharing, yeah. Sharing and, so, um, yeah, and, and um, I suppose because your dad was a doctor, a paediatrician, you saw him give so much and helping yeah. people and using his skills and his yeah. brain. And what, and what did you study at university, Emma? To, um, uh, so I originally you? studied medical microbiology and then I went on to oh. do a PhD at UCL in the Department of Medicine and my um, specialty was in rheumatology. Kind oh. of. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I think, and do you find kind of the area of um, trauma um, and orthopedics quite interesting um, in terms of hospitals? Yeah, I think I used to because when I when I say when I was a scientist, I still feel like a scientist inside. But obviously, I've changed career since then. But I think part of my interest in trauma and how people responded to trauma emotionally actually started from the work I was doing in the oh. labs because when I was you know talking to patients because I'd have to talk to patients about their illness get samples and stuff I'd always start off by talking a bit about them and yeah. get a sense of their feelings and how they're dealing with the trauma of what's happened to them and because part of one of the bits of research I did I need I would get people's spleen so they've obviously had a splenectomy that something's happened traumatic that their spleen had to be taken so I'd always go and talk to them about my research because obviously they were donating their spleen so I'd go and talk to them and say thank you and stuff and talk to them and I think 
parts of that were part of my seeds of how yeah. people relate to their emotions when they've experienced trauma. So yes, you've had a lot of experience talking to um, patients and yeah. you know from different, very difficult traumatic situations. So you, in a yeah. way, it's like a natural career path for you to become uh, a counsellor. And, you, and you're doing that full time now. Yes. Yeah, loving it. <laughs> <laughs> do you think you'll ever? Do you think you will ever go back to being um, a scientist, or do you think? Uh, do you think this is it? You're kind of. Yeah, on your it would be hard to go back to being a scientist. I still have a deep interest in science and read loads of stuff and keep up to date on yeah. what's going on in my areas of interest. But I think what I find hardest is working for somebody now. I quite like working yeah. for myself and doing something I'm absolutely passionate about. I was passionate about science when I was doing it, but now I'm passionate also about working for myself and being independent. So. It's unlikely I could start up a pharmaceutical company by myself. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I've heard a lot of people have done just that in the last ooh, last ten months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and um, we're coming towards the end of the webinar now, but um, I wanted to know if people are interested in uh, talking to you about. Um, Sort of different career paths or uh, they want to discuss like a clash of cultures and to get yeah. in touch with you how is it best to get in touch with you um i think it's the easiest way to get in touch with me at the moment is actually via instagram because i think the dms there are really you know people are always asking questions i find it really easy mm. to answer and communicate with people for that so my handle I don't know what the funky word yeah it's <laughs> therapy button on Instagram so it's quite easy to remember as well because by yeah. the time I start saying my email address is so long but then <laughs> on my Instagram it's got my email address and contact details but you know direct messaging is really easy on there so yeah and lastly do you think in the future you might write a child um, a book about your childhood experiences and like the clash of cultures and how it's sort of shaped you as an adult well, it's interesting because somebody asked me that last week and I was oh, like, <laughs> because on Instagram, I do write a lot about my childhood experiences and my parents and there's a whole thing about hair and all sorts of things. So mm. um, I think one day, because I think there's a lot that has happened over the years and that aspect of the clash of the African and the Caribbean mm. culture, because there's not enough out there about the two mm. melding together and how it can work and it doesn't have to be either or it can yeah. be all of one so one day I might yeah because I think there's a lot of people who've got like um, different cultures in their lives like Polish or could be Albanian or and then you've got the English and the um, UK sort of cultures and um, yeah. African Caribbean so I think a lot of people can relate to that by reading uh, mm -hmm. stories or listening or participating in webinars about it they can relate to it yeah. and think oh how interesting that's how I felt when I was a child yeah. and, um because yeah, at the, end of the day we all share one thing is humanity and the human condition and the ability to connect but the cultural aspect and really understanding each other just comes through storytelling yes yeah 
shared experience to allow everybody to feel that wholeness and oneness. So yeah, I think the power of telling stories is really, really important to keep. Yeah. And that's very enriching and heartwarming as well. When you hear them, you just think, oh, you can almost like visualize it in your head and think, I wish I was there now. And yeah, it's yeah. Be a... <laughs> I could be Nigeria right now. Oh yeah. <laughs> Actually, yes, we, <laughs> I think a lot of people would like to be there in the sunshine and, and on the beach or somewhere warm. <laughs> but th yeah, thank you very much for um, participating in the webinar and giving us an insight into um, the, a few of childhood stories and your experiences. And um, hopefully we can talk again soon on, the, on another Definitely. webinar. Thanks for having me. It's been thank fun. You. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Emma. And um, yeah, we'll end this um, webinar now.